0: Connecting Minds is a space dedicated to honoring the amazing authors, researchers, clinicians, artists, and entrepreneurs who are contributing to our collective evolution or simply making the world a better place. These thought-provoking conversations are intended to expand our horizons, so come with an open mind and let us grow together. Here is your host, Christian Yordanov.
1: Hello and welcome to episode four of the Connecting Minds podcast. I'm your host, Christian Yordanov, and thank you very much for joining me today. Today on the podcast, we have James W. Gesso, who is an author, public speaker, and podcast host with a deep respect for psychedelic medicines. His work is inspired by his healing path through depression, substance abuse, and trauma, and focuses on translating the profound insights Of the psychedelic experience into a higher quality of life for both the individual and society. He has written two books, Decomposing the Shadow, Lessons from the Psilocybin Mushroom and The True Light of Darkness, which present a model for working with the magic Psilocybin Mushroom as an ally in personal transformation and in developing psychospiritual maturity. He's also the host of the Adventures Through the Mind podcast, and that that's his effort to contribute to the psychedelic culture at large. It features interviews with luminaries in science, art, and culture across a range of disciplines. This platform expands James' work into a more broad exploration of progressive social developments and the potential role psychedelics might play within them. So, as you can guess, we will be talking about psychedelic medicines. If you're new to the topic, you're in for a treat because James gives us a very good crash course into what psychedelics are, what they can be used for, some of the history, uh, you know, the, the important uh events and people that kind of led them to coming into the limelight back in the 50s, 60s, 70s and eventually being made illegal. And then he also talks about the recent psychedelic renaissance where ongoing research is showing promise for their use in Various uh, mental disorders, uh, depression, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, addictions, also end-of-life anxiety, for example, in um, end-stage cancer uh, patients and other conditions. So very, very interesting topic. James is really an expert on the topic. So if you've been meaning to research this stuff, just haven't had time now is the time for you to understand a little bit more about the potential that these uh, psychedelic medicines have for us, both as addressing some of our most serious mental conditions that uh, unfortunately the conventional medical system has not been able to address, but also to use as tools for our own personal uh transformation development uh healing our own traumas and wounds and so on so thank you again for joining us and without further ado here is james w Gesso, and we are live today on the connecting minds podcast we have james w Gesso. james thank you so much for taking the time out today man hey thanks for having me christian i really appreciate it awesome let's jump straight into it can you so the topic of today's podcast will be i'd like to you know, because you've had a lot of experience with um, with your podcast, Adventures Through the Mind. You've written a couple of books um, around your experiences with uh, psychedelics, Decomposing the Shadow, Lessons from the Psilocybin Mushroom, and The True Light of Darkness. Um, I kind of started reading both of them over the weekend. Uh, pretty good books, actually. It's nice to kind of read your story in a little bit, see kind of the, the lighter side, the darker side of psychedelics. So the topic of today's podcast, I would just like to just have a, a general discussion around pretty much the basics of psychedelics. But before we get into that, can you tell us what, maybe share a little bit about your journey with psychedelics? How did you get introduced to them and what have they done for you in your life?
0: Well, I got introduced to psychedelics uh, accidentally, I think, uh, or, or indirectly as a kid playing Super Mario Brothers. Um But uh, you know, eating the mushroom, getting really big, uh, eating the flower, being able to spit fire, whatever else. Um, But in all seriousness, I got introduced to psychedelics when I was a teenager. Uh, I was particularly interested in drug culture. I was really excited about the idea of black lights and Pink Floyd and smoking cannabis. And mushrooms came into my life as one of these like next steps from cannabis kind of thing. You know, in in hindsight, it's a very it's a very juvenile way to have approached it, um, but it was what it was available to me in the culture that I was a part of, uh, which was, excuse me, the sort of like quasi-suburban North American Canadian culture of drug use, which was not exactly deeply rooted in in veins of sacred use or any of that. Um, <clears throat> and so my first experiences with it were when I was a teenager, and it was just mostly... You know, youthful experimentation and play, and uh, some some blips along the way. A couple couple uh, couple of negative experiences in the course of it, as as you do when you're a kid and you're just playing around with stuff with fire, you get burned, right? Uh, but nothing too substantial, and it pretty much went dormant for quite some some time. You know, after that, um, I mean, this was 20, 20 years ago, so it was a little bit harder for me to source things and kind of got into a life of weed smoking and beer drinking and that was that was what was what you know um and then mushrooms kind of came back in my early 20s around 22 23 um, along with a bunch of other psychedelic drugs uh, during a time of pretty intense i'd say experimentation because that's what it was but it was also um very detrimental use, uh, that included more than just psychedelics and included a number of other drugs and basically a whole lot of partying while I was living overseas and, uh, was living in a world, uh, that supported that kind of lifestyle. And, uh, I got pretty interested at that time in LSD. In fact, LSD was the thing that sort of like broke me out of a. I, w- I was coming out of an intense sickness that I got shortly after leaving to go travel overseas, which in hindsight, I realized was something really wrong with my kidneys that just resolved themselves. (laughs) Thanks. Some sort of infection. Um, and I was coming out of that. I was feeling really lonely, really disconnected from my home, really depressed ultimately. And I had an LSD experience. Someone gave me some LSD. I'd never taken it before. I was afraid of it. You know, it was like the ultimate drug, you know, like that sort of like narrative. Um, and that, you know, if I had an, I could have a nightmarish trip that would make me crazy and all these sort of things that, you know, aren't entirely untrue, but are certainly narrativized in a way that is far from truth um, a lot of the time. Uh, And then during that experience, I had this sort of awakening moment where I literally was outside of my body or I I was literally experiencing myself as outside my body. Uh, And I was seeing myself just complaining about my life and realizing that I was perpetuating a narrative. That was reinforcing the experience and i could just choose to change it and i can choose to be whoever i wanted to be and do whatever i wanted to do and you know and and be okay and be excited about that now that's also it's an important revelation but it's also quite juvenile because it doesn't bring in all the factors around sort of consequence you know unintended consequences and direct consequences and also how much environment influences choice making and sense making in general Um, but then I decided I would just live whatever life I wanted to live, which ended up being a lot of drugs for quite a while until I got myself pretty messed up, like, uh, and sort of confused. And it was LSD that then told me, Hey, you know, it it allowed me to say something, which I wasn't able to acknowledge in myself, which was, Hey, I, you know, I'm addicted to drugs. And that sort of totally revamped my world again lsd brought me into this world of doing whatever i wanted and just like pushing my mind to the limits and it also brought me to this place of like yo you have limits and you're crossing them and you're hurting yourself right and that experience mostly got me you know throughout all of that i was very excited about everything that justified my psychedelic use as being positive and you know generative Terence McKenna, Timothy Leary, Aldous Huxley. These were the people I was into. Now, these are smart people with excellent concepts and have done great work for psychedelic culture. And I was using them as the intellectual justification of reckless use. Um, and so on the other side of that, that second revelation journey, I had <laughs> LSC many times in between that. Um, I, I went on this sort of this, again, journey in myself to try to figure out what went wrong, how do I change the things that I did that hurt my that were hurting me and become a different person in the context because I didn't like who I was. Uh, And there's a lot about this on my website, I've released videos about this stories about this yada yada. Um, Eventually, I felt like I had gotten myself away from the behaviors, um, the drug use, but I hadn't gotten myself out of the the damage left over. And also the under the things bubbling underneath in my psyche that gave rise to the behaviors in the first place. So I kind of think of it like I killed the mold, but the toxins still in my system kind of thing. And that's when I started using psilocybin mushrooms. And I ended up using them once a month, every month for 13 months. And with this not knowing exactly what would happen but just having a sense that i could heal in some way and that's what ended up happening i ended up resolving a lot of the stuff i was going through at the time really fundamentally altering myself as a person in a very positive way Um, and throughout that developed a really strong relationship with psilocybin and a uh, a conceptual model of engagement and understanding of psilocybin as a process and as a and as a medicine um, and as a and as something that uh, could be integrated into one's life without detaching oneself from the reality of their ordinary responsibilities, but in fact, increasing our capacity to be responsible by helping us become happier, healthier, more resolved, less emotionally repressed people. Um, And that in those mushroom trips, I ended up deciding like, oh, you know, I need to share this with other people. Other people in my life were telling me that when I shared it with them, it was positive and since i always wanted to be a writer i decided to write a book about it and then i started giving talks about it and that was in 2013 that the book was released after you know quite a bit of time of writing it and then since 2013 the ball has just been rolling increasingly around becoming a i guess you could say like um like a citizen scientist or or, or an, an an amateur researcher on psychedelic medicine culture um, and yeah just psychedelics in general and the podcast is a significant part of that journey um, as well so that's kind of like that's kind of me just like blasting through it um and so all in all psychedelics have been incredibly positive in my life even though some of my experiences have left me with things that I needed to clean up afterwards
1: yeah um what I like about your podcast is you you know, you ask really good questions of some real kind of heavy hitters in the psychedelic uh, community, researchers, authors, um, you know, doctors, and you're you're able to really probe well. And at the same time, you, you have the capacity to play devil's advocate really well and not just take everything they say at face value and really argue well with them on some points because, you know, some some of those guys can be fairly out there. I was listening to your, um, talk with, uh, Dr. Andrew Gallimore, uh, and, you know, he mm-hmm. has some pretty far out ideas. That's just one example where you're really able to kind of, um, you know, just kind of argue the other side. Um, what, what's what, great. Uh, I mean, to be
0: fair, like who made that extra easy for me is that Andrew is an awesome guy and he is like totally on board. Um for that kind of thing i I, re- I really like him, so that was one of the reasons like I felt good in that pushback kind of thing because he's just yeah, like yeah. he's so game for those kinds of things, so yeah he's he's great yeah and
1: and exactly you have to like you know i you have to be able to have your ideas be scrutinized, especially when they're so kind of out there as well so yeah, but um, what I'd like to you know my 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 at least what piqued my interest in the psychedelic research is there's a lot of studies going on at the moment that are focusing on things like ptsd depression um uh a- end of life anxiety you know for example in cancer so kind of fear of death this kind of stuff and importantly addiction is another area that i, I think there's some amazing work being done um could you i you know as i mentioned before we start recording i, I feel like the audience for, for this particular episode will not be too into the research into the psychedelic culture. So could you maybe start at the beginning? Could you give us a, a brief overview of, you know, what are the main psychedelics? What can they be used for? And what happened with them in the 60s and 70s that caused them to be so, you know, uh, grossly stigmatized in our society? And what have recent developments in the last decade or two, um, uh, done to begin the process of destigmatizing these, uh, I want to call them medicines. Hmm. Um, those are three very complex
0: questions. Well, well done. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, the, the main ones we'll say are often referred to as the, as the classical psychedelics and Um, The ones that fit inside of that category, and this may be too high level, too quick, hopefully your listeners just hang on, uh, are ones that directly impact the serotonin 5-HD2A receptor. So this is just like a certain receptor site in the brain that the classical psychedelics tend to impact predominantly, although different ones do so differently and other receptor sites differently as well. Generally, what's recognized as the classical psychedelics are psilocybin, which is the active alkaloid in magic mushrooms, LSD or acid, um, mescaline, which is the active alkaloid in something like peyote or the San Pedro cactus, um, and then also uh, DMT, dimethyltryptamine. DMT, I don't think was as hot in the 1670s 70s as it is now, but that's a whole different sort of line of inquiry. Um, and those are sort of the classicals. Now, you mentioned treatment of PTSD. That's generally, uh, these days that's primarily connected with MDMA. MDMA is not a classical psychedelic, although it does act on serotonin. It doesn't act on the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor. It acts on the, on the search gate, which controls how much serotonin flows in and out of the, 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 oh, cleft synaptic cleft into the inter intersynaptic fluid, whatever that's called. Um, and it's, it's it's not technically a psychedelic even, although it is kind of lumped in understandably and I think reasonably inside of psychedelic medicine. So those are the classics. Those are the primary ones. There's a host of others, um, even from 50 years ago and still today. You know, like people would think, say, um, ayahuasca when they think maybe of psychedelics, even if they're new. Um, and ayahuasca has obviously been around for centuries at least. Um, and it's predominantly a combination of DMT and an, another set of molecules called a, <clears throat> Um And then there's a whole host of, of ones that are like chemical remixes that are based on psilocybin or LSD or based on MDMA or based on mescaline. And, and that's a whole other world, right? So it's a, it's a massive, massive tapestry of molecules that could fit inside of what psychedelics are They even in sometimes interact with the same receptor sites but the predominant ones that people will understand will be psilocybin magic mushrooms lsd acid um mescaline peyote although that's not very widely used right now for lots of reasons um and then mdma is sort of like a side thing so in the 50s um psychedelics were breaking into the sort of Western um, academic world as a consequence of a variety of, of major players, one of which was uh, a guy named R. Gordon Wasson, who discovered that there are mushrooms that have psychoactive effects. Through a through a very complicated interaction he had with a woman named Maria Sabina, who was a, a, a medicine woman in Mexico, that is... I mean, he's widely recognized in a positive light and on some level, yes, but that interaction between him and Maria Sabina, it was on some level quite expletive, exploitive, um, and the consequences of it for her life um, and for that sort of town there was really negative. I I don't have a particular sort of like stance I want to take on that, except that um, there's lots to unfold there about colonialist extractivism and the... Sort of misuse of, or the, the the destruction of indigenous cultures for, you know, us to get their resources from them, which I think was yeah. definitely at play with R. Gordon Wasson, and this was in the fifties. And then you have people like Albert Hoffman, who discovered um, LSD in nineteen forty. Was it nineteen forty six or nineteen forty three? Nineteen thirty eight. He discovered it right in
1: forty three. He. Forty-three, he accidentally 43. dosed himself. He dosed it, yeah, for the first time. So he discovered the effects
0: of LSD in nineteen forty-three. Okay, so thank you for that. Um, they, these things are getting introduced into the world, and you have major people like Timothy Leary and Richard Albert, who um, is the late great. Um, I mean, both Timothy Leary and Albert are dead now, uh, but Albert became Ramdas. So you have all these sort of like major people that are happening in the 50s, also Stanislav Groff. A lot of stuff is happening. A lot of research is happening. LSD is just blowing up. It is like this amazing molecule that's going on. There's research happening all over the world. Even in Canada, the term psychedelic was coined by a Canadian researcher working in Saskatchewan. Um, And inside of the academic institutions, you know, things were coming out. They were looking at LSD as sort of like, Um, Sanzloff-Groff, a Czech researcher, very important figure in psychedelic science, said that it is um, psychedelics to the mind are like the telescope for astronomy and the microscope for biology, right? This is how important it would be as a tool for, for psychotherapy, yeah? Now, that's going on and that's amazing. A lot of good work is happening. And also, it's sort of like broken out of the lab and it's grow, like the usage of it is growing inside of counterculture in the United States, but also the rest of the world. And this is also around the time of the Vietnam War and a variety of other things happening. So now we're into we're out of the 50s and we're into the 60s. So we have the hippie movement, the counterculture movement, the anti-war movement, the environmental movement, and the like the black empowerment movements that were happening at that time. And all of which were sort of intimately tied with LSD and with cannabis and understandably so a lot of people were getting hurt as a consequence of very sort of reckless use of LSD. Like a lot of people were just freaking out and having a good time. And some people were freaking out and getting really hurt by it. People were going off the rails and getting hurt. Um, but the, the clamp down of criminalization against, LSD and cannabis. Um, I mean, cannabis. I think was already illegal, but the clampdown against these things came as a consequence of their association to um, the like Black people's movement and anti-war movement. Which one of Nixon's advisors, not that not that long ago, it came out that he knew, and Nixon knew that. The only reason they scheduled and criminalized these drugs was actually so that they could use that as a leveraging point to criminalize dissent against the war and to criminalize being black, which is in many ways how cannabis criminalization in the United States continues to operate. That's mm-hmm. a bigger question. So in the 70s, I think it was 1971, the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act comes out, and the use of psychedelics, mushrooms, like psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, DMT, all these things, even things that weren't even that popular all got clumped together and they were made like the utmost illegal. I mean, back reference, Nixon even called Timothy Leary public enemy number one because Leary was like out there making a fuss about it. Now, mind you, he was also trying to make up for and fight in the legal system for the right for people to have psychedelics and also it's a complex mess. He's not a bad, I don't think he was a bad guy in all of this, but he made some mistakes and tried to compensate for them as best he could. um, But he also made lots of mistakes. Uh, I mean, this is kind of like a, a whirlwind stuff, but then there was also Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and the Grateful Dead. There was a lot of places where LSD was just funneling out into the counterculture that weren't Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary was really, a lot for structured use, unlike some of those other characters I just mentioned. Just so for listeners, it gets he, was a, it he was a
1: Harvard professor, I just wanted to add. Uh, him and Richard Alpert, Ram Dust, they were actually in Harvard, so um, they were doing the psilocybin project as well, weren't they?
0: Yeah, so it, they were in Harvard, and they had the psilocybin project, and they did some good work at the time. The methodology scientifically is questionable nowadays, but it was very interesting work. And they actually, I mean, Leary was like kind of creating a fuss at Harvard, but couldn't be fired uh, because he had tenure. And he also was doing, he had done incredible work psychologically uh, or for psychology and for the university up until this point, until he, I think in he had his first psilocybin journey and said that in Mexico. And he said that he learned more in one psilocybin journey than he had in like 20 years of psychotherapy or something like that or psychiatry um but he was tenured they actually got fired because the the university had said like um the university had said fine you just keep doing your thing keep giving psilocybin to the students as a part of your psilocybin project yeah sure but just don't give it to um i think it was undergrads or or first years and richard alpert had a crush on this guy and who was an undergrad and so like In this way of sort of like trying to create a dynamic where it was like, cool, he would like offered, yeah, we could give you the psilocybin as a way of sort of like, I don't know, maybe, I don't know what he was, his intentions were, but trying to like make himself look cool or sort of like flirt, be like, yeah, we can, we can get you in behind the door. You know, as we do, sometimes we want to give special access to people that we have a bit of a crush on. And then Andrew Weil, like Dr. Andrew Weil, Andy Weil, like the sort of like famous natural health doctor now was, was writing uh, for a campus paper at Harvard, and exposed Albert for violating the terms of their agreement with the university, and Albert got fired. And Leary was like, "This is bullshit. I'm quitting." To like stay in solidarity with his with his friend and his and his like research partner, which is like, there's a there's a documentary called, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, dying dying to know. Um, and it's about LSD. It's about Richard Alpert and, and, uh, Timothy Leary, but yeah, so he was a, he was a Harvard professor that, you know, they say he got fired for his work with psilocybin. but it's much more complex like that. Most sort of simplistic narratives are usually misrepresentative of the actual reality, regardless of how much sort of self-righteous, uh, justification or outrage might be behind that narrative or, or that narrative feeds. Um, So yeah, when they got criminalized in the 70s, 1971, they didn't just get criminalized like, hey, you hippie tripper, black person, you can't do drugs. It's like these drugs, Schedule 1, means they're like a fundamental harm to all of society and have no medical value whatsoever. They must be completely removed from society, which was not the case. There was, I think at that point, more than a thousand research papers about LSD. You know, if I if I remember correctly, um, and so they're fully criminalized. All academic work needs to shut down completely. And in that time frame, from the seventies up until about two thousand and four, two thousand six, I think I can't remember exactly what day. Psychedelics were heavily stigmatized because they were, you know, there was a, a misinformation propaganda machine that associated them to the ha- like harm and damage to the brain, to the, the genetic damage or chromosome damage, not true, mm-hmm. you know, and all these things that make it so that even just the mentioning of psychedelics could totally harm your, like could destroy your academic career. Right. Yeah. Because they were so um, villainized and, and, um, and sort of like um, either villainized or delegitimized in some way. And in 2004, 2006, I mean, In the course of this, we have a guy named Rick Doblin who runs something called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. He is somewhere in there, he's involved and he's like starts organizing this group that eventually will become the primary means by which sort of like one of the central means by which psychedelics are in the process of medicalization, which is this organization directly connected to MDMA which I don't know as much about, so I can't really speak to, but that's all sort of happening congruent with what I'm talking about now. But like later, I think from like the eighties and and seventies or eighties and beyond. So in 2004, a highly, highly um, reputable uh, research psychiatrist named Roland Griffiths, who has a long like track, like massive track record of, of, published peer reviewed articles on the relationship between drugs and people and animals. And he basically decides that he will recreate one of the most sort of central studies of the psychedelic era, which is the Marsh chapel experiment where they basically gave seminary students. This was a, this was Walter Pankey who was a researcher at the time. Um, uh, he would give, he gave psilocybin to seminary students during the, um, during Good Friday in the basement of a church, to see, and some of them he gave, I think methylphenidate, um, to see whether or not they had religious experiences. Which, of course, they did have religious experiences, and some of them to this day look back and say, "Like that fundamentally changed my life." But uh, Griffiths decides that he'll just try with better research methodology to recreate this experiment and see does it hold. And with like you know, like top level five star scientific rigor reruns, redoes this thing. And it's this landmark study that says psilocybin can occasion mystical type experiences. And that sort of opens the floodgates in some sense. Now there are other pieces here in the nineties, a guy named Rick Strassman did some human research, um, with, uh, DMT. There's other research that's going on here in the midst of that with different molecules, um, That can produce different experiences there's a lot going on than just what i just explained but that's sort of the main narrative now that sort of landmark study in 2004 2006 was followed up to saying like after 18 months there's still sustained positive impacts in these people after having this experience and these became the foundations for increasing amounts of studies to unfold which now look at things around like you said, psilocybin for terminal anxiety as well as psilocybin for smoking cessation for major depressive disorder or treatment resistant resistant depression, um, as well as MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder, LSD for alcoholism that also existed in the past and is being recreated, and a host of other things that's just like just a massive track record right now of psychedelic research um, that is in, in the midst, in the mix with a movement to medicalize them legitimately to bring them into medical practice to then uh, you know integrate psychedelics into society as a medicine and yeah i think that brings us up to about here was that all your questions i know it's a bit of a whirlwind for your listeners but uh, it's a pretty complex (laughs) pretty complex sort of a set of stuff
1: there yeah yeah you covered really well yeah so times looks like exciting times for this kind of stuff with with that, obviously, um, the first step is medicalization, but I think a lot of, a lot of um, people pushing kind of on the frontiers of the movement, they don't just want the medicalization. So that we don't just want you know folks that have some type of, you know, let's say mental disorder or, or an addiction to benefit from them. There are benefits. Um, as you already kind of alluded to, you know, uh, psilocybin can occasion mystical type experiences in 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 he- healthy volunteers. So, could you maybe talk about what could be the benefits for society or for the individual outside of, let's say, this medicalization of these psychedelics? Of psychedelics. <clears throat>
0: um, well, I'll first call back to everything I just said about the history and encourage people to look into. Other people who have a more coherent or more in-depth discussion of the history—that was sort of a sort of ad ad hoc, I think, off the cuff sort of uh, exploration—and and it's a really rich and beautiful history. So I highly recommend looking into the people who have done good historical work on that. So what you're pointing at is something that—and I'm not sure if he said it first—but I know that he said it, which was Leo R- Rosman or Leo Rosman, who is a a researcher at Imperial College London was presenting at the, I think it was the psychedelic science um, conference in 2017. And he had said something like, you don't have to be sick to be better. Right. So yes, moving towards integrating psychedelics into our society through the tract of medicalization can be incredibly positive because it seems as though they're able to address issues and illnesses, mental issues and illnesses, that aren't able to be addressed by the medicine that we currently have. You know, little known, little known sort of tidbit of information. We have all this info and research and all these drugs for antidepressant effects, which are called, you know, serotonin selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and all the different sort of like evolutions of that over time and then leaning into selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors and all the rest of this. And all of that sort of tracks back to the discovery of LSD and serotonin and the alteration of mind. So SSRIs are actually sort of the brainchild of LSD research in the early in the early years there in the 50s. But that aside, um, these things aren't, aren't seeming to treat things like major depression or tra- post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, they're not working. For example, uh, end of life anxiety is they, they, they funnel so many antidepressant drugs into people and pain drugs, you know, because, you know, total pain where emotional, psychological existential pain manifests physical pain and it doesn't, it doesn't help. Right. And, and with psilocybin we'll say in particular, There's an ability to have an experience that inside of this subjectively meaningful experience, there is a type of releasing of emotional repression of of held emotional things and revelations around oneself, one's place in the universe, the, the meaning of life that can fundamentally alter the way we experience life. And as a consequence resolve things like major depression at least temporarily and for other people the anxiety of dying right so these are incredible medicines for that kind of thing with mdma people have treatment resistant to, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder nobody it doesn't seem to be working at all and their lives are just hanging by a thread and then the research shows something like 80% remission These are from people who have tried absolutely everything and they're still suffering. And 80% of those people, I think it, I think after it was like 80% and then after months of not having the MDMA, the number went up. So it's not just like the drugs effect. It's about how it changes the very essence of, of our sense of self in the world. Right? So, This is incredibly positive for people who are deeply and profoundly suffering. And that same positive impact can be had where someone who's not profoundly and intensely suffering. For example, is the fact that I am not riddled and crippled, we'll say, um, with profound depression, mean that I couldn't benefit from an experience of letting go of the deep grief I've been holding for 20 years and on the other side of it feel loved and held by a larger cosmic force in the universe where life's beauty is now more available to me and I'm more able to show up to the world and to my relationships no longer, you know, no longer hindered by the, by the deep and profound unconscious emotional load of unprocessed grief. And a complete disconnection with the beauty that animates the world that I live in is the fact that I'm not already unable to get out of bed reason for me not to benefit from that experience. Well, no, of course not. It's ridiculous. Right. These things can be incredibly positive for us. Right. And so I think in many ways, that's why we have a decriminalization movement saying like, whoa, 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 it doesn't matter if I'm sick. It doesn't matter if I have trauma. It doesn't matter. I still have the right to alter my consciousness however I choose. And I find that these things are positive and beneficial for me. And there's a lot of discussion there about harm reduction and integration and blah, blah, blah. It's not just a magic bullet. You know, you don't just take the pill and it fixes everything by any means. You know, but there's good reason to say, no, like this this should be a fundamental right for us to be able to alter our mind however we choose. And the fact that it can be positive for healthy people is evident even in the research right so does that does that kind of answer yeah. answer your question
1: yeah 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 it's um it's like you're able to read books to you know improve your mind you're able to meditate to explore your consciousness. why shouldn't you be able to you know enter non ordinary non ordinary states of consciousness to you know Similarly to meditation, to explore your mind, to, you well, let know, me, let me jump expand in there, okay? your mind. Let's,
0: yeah. let's, say, let's say that the reason, and I don't think this is the best use of, say, mushrooms, but let's say the reason I want to take mushrooms isn't to explore my mind in deep meditation. It's so I could get, like, hella, hella fun on the dance floor and, like, feel really good in my body or to, to be able to get involved with, like, some sort of beautiful sexual experience that's enhanced with molecules and whatever else maybe the reason i want to take it is entirely hedonistic Mm -hmm. i don't think that's the best best use of the substance saying oh, it's a great use during lovemaking that's not what i'm saying but pure hedonism isn't the best use of the substance but even if that's the reason i can own a gun i can jump out of an airplane i can ride a horse i can i can actively participate in competitive fighting and i can't take a little mushroom that grows into a forest that causes me to feel like ever, that feel like life is beautiful and it, and 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 just so that i could be altered and weird if that's the only reason you know it's just like a ridiculous. it is ridiculous you know it does not hold up to logic at all and when you start to break down the actual, or it doesn't hold up to good reason, but when, and when you break down the actual logic behind why they remain criminalized, it's very ignorant and it's very draconian. Um, and it has a lot to do with decisions that were made a long time ago, pa- paradigmatically, as in like the, the paradigm that just function and continue to function. And I think that's why it's letting up now because people aren't yeah. stupid. Politicians aren't stupid. Lawmakers, they're not stupid. You know, they know they 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 see what's happening. They see the fact that millions of people have taken acid since nineteen seventy and society hasn't fallen apart. If anything, so Facebook is tearing society apart a lot faster than LSD ever did, you know, with the algorithms and increased polarization and all the rest. You know, so I think that those things are those things are changing. But the actual current the actual current logic around why to keep these things illegal. Um, has less to do with it being good reason and more to do with the fact that it's just hard to change laws that were made a long time ago, despite how stupid they were.
1: Yeah, my my personal opinion is there's a, you know, it's beyond ignorance. I think there's more sinister reasons, sinister reasons that these compounds are still illegal. Whereas things like cigarettes, you know, it took, uh, uh, I don't know, 50 years to for them to kind of, put labels on packaging that they're bad for you to for them to acknowledge they're bad and so on. Um, I, 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 I think that the, the hippie movement, um, you know, all those kids that didn't want to go kill their brothers and sisters in Vietnam was a, a, a scary notion that th- these compounds actually make you love people more. They make you relate to nature more, to be other people more. And they can. when you're trying to d- divide. Yeah when you're trying to divide and control people, that's not exactly what you want. So at least that's my opinion. Um, but, you know, I, I don't like to kind of push that onto others. I like where you're going with that. Very- I think that's, a. Fa- I what? think that's pretty fair.
0: I think that's pretty fair where you're coming
1: from. Yeah. Thanks. So. Well, I kind of forgot my train of thought there. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, so this is what I wanted to say earlier, right? So you you, you kind of started a good thread about yeah. So these compounds can help with depression, can help with uh, trauma. Uh, they can help well people, you know, transform and expand and 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 uh, develop uh, in many ways. But what many of what's unbeknownst to many of us is that we think we're fine. We don't have any medical diagnoses. We have a, a very functional life. We have jobs. We have hobbies. You know, we might have children, responsibilities, everything. However, um, we we are actually somewhat kind of... The, 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 it's like we have a crutch. It's like we have a limp. It, there's this undercurrent of repressed emotions, uh, you know, an un, unconscious trauma that... I like how you refer to it as the shadow... Would you speak to that and how psychedelics can actually help us tap into that process and integrate it so we can actually live fuller lives?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about Ernest Becker's denial of death, and it's something very simplistically summarized as as our fear, the, the deep fear that prevents us from looking at our own dying is the thing that also prevents us from living our life. Um, you know, the degree to which we're afraid to address and look into our own inevitable death is the degree to which we hinder ourselves from being fully and completely alive while we're alive. And a lot of us are carrying quite a bit of pain, quite a bit of shame, quite a bit of anger, quite a bit of wounding as a consequence of the lives that we have lived and the relational injuries that we've incurred and, um, we, that we have incurred and occurred onto others. You know, a lot of us are carrying that. And for the most part, we're mostly coping most of the time, right? And yet it's still there and we still carry it. If it's unaddressed, we still carry it. And, you know, these are trauma. I mean, I, I, I say trauma, you might think of a car accident or a sexual assault or something like that. And that is also trauma, right? And this is trauma too, in a way. And... All of this stuff sort of buried out, all this aspects of ourselves we'd rather not feel, you know, that we that we sort of evade or deflect or repress. These are all things that, you know, over time they take they they put a load on our body. They put a load on our mind. We're almost we're front loaded with every experience we have that might act to ad- accidentally trigger or agitate those things that we're trying to get away from. And once they're triggered and agitated, all of a sudden we're not thinking clearly or responding clearly. We're acting out of a wounded place out of usually a much younger wounded place. And, and as a consequence, creating or worsening conflicts that could have been resolved otherwise. So we don't, unless we know what those things are and are able to be with them in a way that's constructive, then we are led by them. So it's something like, um, I think, you know, shadow comes from um, uh, Carl Jung, a famous psychologist. And he says that it's, it's like all that we don't want to recognize about ourselves, know about ourselves, sort of the personification of that. And if we don't actively reveal and integrate our shadows, then it will run our lives for us. Right, so with psychedelics there is the possibility to open up the defenses because chances are we don't know that stuff's there the decision to suppress that stuff happened likely much early in our lives or is happening somewhere before our conscious awareness right Mm -hmm. so with psychedelics the defense mechanisms the adaptive defenses that we maladaptive or not that we've that we've brought up to protect ourselves from the old wounds that we're still carrying, or even the feelings that are present with us now that we don't want to feel. Because as a society, we we don't raise our children to be competent and mature emotional beings. We focus on intellectual development and physical development as if emotional development is not necessary. Like It's just like an epiphenomenon of the rest of life that we have to sort of deal with as little as possible just so we could get back to our intellectual lives right so we have all this stuff we oh i kind of lost my own train there i gotta come back from this little eddy. um when we take psychedelics those defenses go down and that stuff can come up and in coming up we can Grapple with it. We can feel that pain. We can we can let it out. We can see, at the very least, that it's there, and we can see how it's impacting the way we show up in the world. Oddly enough, that just if you if the set is right, your mindset is is in a good place, the context in which you're using it, and your dose is right. That just unfolds naturally. It's not like we have to try to do that. You know, it just unfolds naturally. That type of process just comes out, especially with. Psilocybin or LSD, and in you know, also with things like ayahuasca, MDMA. These things just we just naturally go there if we we create the context, the psychological context, the set, the physical, socio-cultural context, the setting, and the appropriate dose. We just that stuff just comes up, and we can properly deal with it. We can bring it to the front of our awareness, and if we're aware that it's there, then it can't direct us from the shadow. It can't direct us unconsciously if we know that it's operating. We have a greater capacity to be responsible with our own reactivity. And as a consequence, also a greater capacity to learn healthier emotional patterns as we come to uh, you know, acknowledge how destructive the emotional patterns we had previously or emotional sort of behaviors we had previously is in our lives and in our relationships. That's something that can be offered with, with um, psychedelics in a well health context, but it isn't a guaranteed result. That's like a, that's like an opportunity that we then have to actualize into our lives afterwards. That's a premise of integration. Um,
1: And something else. I was just about to ask you, I was just about to ask you, maybe you can weave in this, this term integration being thrown around a lot. Maybe you can kind of give the listeners an overview. What does it actually mean to integrate a psychedelic experience so that you can actually benefit from it?
0: Mm-hmm. So, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to that. But before I do, um, another thing about shadow work, and, and this isn't often talked about, is this, is this concept of the golden shadow. You know, if the shadow shadow is the parts of you that you don't want to acknowledge the dark parts, the painful parts, the fear, the, the stress, the shame, the inadequacy, the hopelessness, the helplessness, the worthlessness, all of that, if that's part of your shadow shadow, There's this other part of you, the golden shadow, which is your beauty, your light, your, your worthiness, like the, the context of deep and profound love that holds you knowing that you're already perfect, that you've already fulfilled your greatest purpose on this planet by simply being, and that you are worthy of, of love and appreciation and care to at the very least give yourself, right? Those things that golden shadow is often obfuscated by the shadow shadow. We can't, just like the denial of death is a denial of life, the inability to own our shadow is also an inability to fully live in our golden light. Okay, so there's a lot to all of that. You know, that is just the surface level sort of like, back of the book discussion about what that all means okay don't take any of it at face value and if you're listening to this and you're inspired by this look more deeply at these at the questions that come up for you when i say these things don't just take them as what they are simply by the fact that i said them i believe they're true but they're also more nuanced and complex than i've presented them Um, so integration you have an experience and then afterwards what of that you have an experience of being deep and profound, or you have a deep and profound experience, does that make you a deep and profound person afterwards? If you, think of it this way, if you watch a YouTube video on how to repair a sink, does that mean you've learned how to repair a sink? The fact that you met a plumber one time And they were all about plumbing. Does that make you, and you were there while they did all the plumbing work, does that mean that you are now a plumber? That you know how to be a plumber? No, it doesn't. You know, having a psychedelic experience, processing all this stuff, accessing this light and this beauty and this joy, this creativity, this curiosity, what IFS might call self-energy, you know, accessing that, that place, doesn't necessarily mean that that's now who you are. The fact that you did a bunch of crying for what an asshole you've been doesn't mean that you're not going to be an asshole again afterwards. That's an active effort. So integration is the process by which we sort of take the most salient and meaningful aspects of our psychedelic experiences and attempt to weave them in To our everyday lives through intentional practices and efforts, internally and relationally. If we have a realization that we are worthy of love, that after our psychedelic experience, we actively cultivate that worthiness and actively choose not to water the weeds. This is a quote from my friend, colleague Trevor Miller, not water the weeds that cover up our ability to do that you know if we have a revelation that my partner feels cared for when i do the dishes and i love my partner after the psychedelic experience we do the dishes we don't just know that because because we figured that out we can access care now and that care is there no we have to actually do the work afterwards and so integration is about that now this gets more complicated when what we've experienced is some sort of like transrational state of consciousness that is beyond the individual. It's transpersonal. It's 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 beyond even time and space. You know, possibly it isn't it's with interactions with what seem to be other intelligence and entities. That kind of thing can happen on a high dose of psychedelics. You know, possibly the realization is that you're Everything that you've done your entire life feels like a giant sham and you've never really been yourself and you don't even like the people you spend the most time with. You know, like integration has to happen there too. And it's obviously a lot more complex than doing the dishes, but it's, it's grappling with wrestling with the impact of our psychedelic experiences, not fighting, wrestling, you know, fighting is winner, fighting is one person dominates the other wrestling is a, is a, is a, is an elegant art where you can get pinned and still win for style. Okay, so we wrestle with the impact of our psychedelic experience, and that wrestling metaphor is a callback uh, reference to Stephen Jenkinson. Highly recommend checking him out. We wrestle with the impact of our psychedelic experiences in a way that weaves the most salient and meaningful aspects of it into our sense of self, our our engagement with life, and especially in our relationships through action and practice, practice and action. So inner practice and explicit action. Um, And it's also incredibly complicated and there's really no end to it in the same way an interaction you had with someone who was really inspiring 20 years ago can continue to Inspire you differently as you become a different person over the course of those 20 years The integration of psychedelic experiences can do the same. So it's not a It's not I did the dishes twice now. I've integrated that experience kind of thing, right again complex nuanced if this excites your listeners, there's lots of, there's lots of interviews on my podcast that go much deeper into these, into these inquiries.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I love, um, there's some of those interviews I'll have to listen probably two, three times to fully, you know, absorb what's being said. Definitely. Especially the ones around transgenerational trauma and, uh, you know, the epigenetics of trauma, this kind of stuff that really, really fascinates me. And I, I feel like, this is where psychedelics can shine. If, if we as a society can process our own pains, our own traumas, before we have a chance to pass them on to the next generation, I think this may be maybe a foundation, you know, for steering us into a better direction, uh, you know, as a species. That's kind of one benefit there I can see. Um. So we've covered Poss- a lot of possibly, possibly.
0: Let yeah, me jump in awesome. real quick.
1: Sure, sure. In all of that,
0: it's still possible to use psychedelics and have, instead of it sort of deconstruct our ego and make us a more receptive, humble, loving, compassionate, caring person, they can also inflate our ego. And that mystical union with the essence of life can just affirm that we're on the right course and we should continue to do our extractive excuse me extractive technologies and whatever else you know yeah. if you look at what's going a lot of what's going wrong with the world right now around sort of part pardon the terminology but like the the consequence of like tech bros running the very essence of how we interact with society because there's you know 50 programmers that are behind the platforms that are the primary means by which we navigate and understand events in our lives socially and personally, which is all led by algorithms that distort and disconnect us from the objectivity of what's happening and funnel us into extreme polarity, right? Those guys are all taking ayahuasca. They're all going to Burning Man. They're they're doing all this stuff and they're still doing these things, right? So again, it's so much more complex than, it's such a complex issue. It's as complex as why we are who we are and what is this world we're in. You know, how did we get here? How do we get out of it? You know, this is how complex it is. So I want to be clear that they're not, they're not benevolent agents of betterment, right? But we can work with them in a way that invites that into our lives.
1: Well, you kind of, you you almost read my mind there. I was was going to kind of, um, you know, we've covered the, the potentially positive aspects of psychedelics, but... They're, now that they're becoming more and more destigmatized in our society, what are some potential negative sides that you, you can kind of foresee that they can bring into society? I mean, you already covered one. Maybe, maybe you want to discuss further?
0: Oh, uh, I mean, I don't know if society can get... I don't know if bringing psychedelics into society could be too much worse. I mean, something like maybe the Brave New World like the consequences of, of uh, Aldous Aldous Hux's book, the brave new world, but I'm not sure something like LSD or psilocybin will create that. I mean, personally in your life, we didn't say it, but you know, full blown psychosis, total loss of capacity to appropriately show up to the responsibilities of your life. You know, complete detachment from the people and things that you care about. Even here's a negative consequence that can result from a positive experience, okay? You realize you don't even like the people you spend your time with, but they're the only people you know, they're your friends. And now you're isolated and lonely. That's a possibility, right? There are so many things that can go wrong when we start playing with this, with the integrity of how our minds hold themselves together and appropriately held context, set setting dose can help mitigate those risks significantly and optimize the benefits, but the risks are still always there. Yeah. For people who want to know about the risks, you can listen to James Kent's um, last 10 episodes of final 10 episodes of dose nation. I wouldn't recommend starting there because it's a very dark and somewhat dismal take on psychedelic culture and history. Um, And I think that it's, I think that it is, it is pretty biased in its exploration of the negatives, but if you want to know where how things can go wrong, well, there's a good example of how they can go wrong. He lays it out there, step by step, over the course of something like 30 hours of podcasts. Um, but I wouldn't start there. I'd say I I start actually, with my podcast. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I listened. I listened to that uh, interview with him. It was actually very interesting, um, somewhat kind of shocking. Yeah, so definitely don't start there. But I would highly recommend Adventures Through the Mind, your podca- podcast. Uh, for though that those that are interested of course nobody here is um you know saying I, I personally and I'm sure you agree James is maybe we could even go as far as to say that most people won't and probably shouldn't take psychedelics and those that do better be prepared to put in many 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 out, days and hours and, and weeks and months of preparation and then many more in you know like you said integration and in order to reap those benefits it's not the kind of thing you go out to the bar and have a few pints uh and nobody is you know especially if this is illegal in your country nobody is recommending that people should go out and start you know looking for mushrooms and things like that
0: at least that's not the optimal way to work with it i mean i'm i'm a pretty strong i don't think this is the best use of them by any means but Also, you know, like if you want to take a couple grams of mushrooms and go to the bar, I can tell you firsthand, it's, it is usually not very comfortable experience, you know, but that should be your choice, you know? Um, uh, And, and you know what, I, I don't think everybody, I don't think everybody should, but I think more people should than are, than there are people who think that they should, you know what I mean? And I also think that, yes, if you want to deeply work with psychedelics in a way that can, you know, that they become allies in your journey towards becoming a better person and in becoming a better person, becoming a better citizen of the society that we live in, yes, it takes ample amounts of preparation, well-structured use, integration, but you don't need that to have a good experience. You know, you just need to be prepared enough and have the right set, setting dose things put together that you don't freak out. And if you do, there's somebody there to hold your hand, right? And to talk about what happened afterwards, right? So I want to make it clear that I, I, I there, there is a lot of complexity here. There's a lot of hard work that can be done here that's really positive. And also, it's not like... And also, if you just want to take psychedelics, just do your absolute best to have your benefit optimization and harm reduction strategies on hand and ready to go so that you can do so in a way that's not detrimental to you. So, yeah, I don't, I don't want to like create, I don't want to gatekeep this with like, it has to be like hard work and this and that. And and those things benefit the work by, by far, you know, but it's like, you know, if you want to just, if you want to just, call up a ayahuasca center and go down there and do your thing, then just go down there and do your thing. I mean, there's a lot of complexity there about extractivism and ayahuasca tourism and the impact of colonialism on, on sort of like central and South America. And there's a lot of complexity there too, you know, so it's, it's, it's maybe not just to go up to whatever ayahuasca center, but I I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to gatekeep this. I do think it's important. It's serious work, you know, um, but it also makes me think of Nick's son. He's a comedian and a, and a, uh, ayahuasca person out in Australia. And he said something like, he said something along the lines of, of the acacia, which is a psychoactive tree in Australia that contains a DMT and a, and a collection of other things. Um, he said something like the acacia taught him that like life is a joke, you know, you just don't get, but you won't get it if you don't take it serious, you know? So it's like that kind of energy, um, And so, yeah, I I just, I think I wanted to just point out, be like, yo, I don't want to gatekeep this, you know, ultimately educate yourself and make the choice that makes the most sense for you.
1: Well, I, I really want to thank you for your work, um, because you're, you know, you're doing a, you're working very hard to educate and, you know, push kind of push the acceptance of psychedelics in our society for for further. So I really want to thank you for your work um before we wrap up can you please tell our listeners where to find you your podcast your books your essays your videos all that that good stuff
0: yeah so everything's at jameswjesso.com james w j e s s o dot com
1: we have the links
0: and uh most uh that's the adventures of the mind podcast all the links for the platforms be it spotify itunes I use Podcast Addict or whatever it is Stitcher, Podbean. They're all on JamesWJesso.com. My social media stuff is all at JamesWJesso. Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter. And then if you want to join the subreddit, we have a I post and we have discussions there about the content. That's the r at mind podcast. If you know what Reddit is, it's subreddit for at mind podcast. A T T M I N D. Um, but it's ultimately jameswjessup.com. I have recently been trying to extract myself from social media as a recent video I put up on my YouTube channel, um, about social media's impact on my attentional patterns and my self worth and my reality. Um, and so if your listeners are on that similar sort of vein, I encourage them fully and completely to go all in on extracting themselves from social media. And if they'd like to follow my content and be off social media, just sign up for my email newsletter. I don't spam. I send it out every couple months with some updates and stuff and you can check it out that way. So awesome. And hey, thank, Christian, awesome. thank you so much for having me on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, brother. Thank you for listening to connecting minds. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and found it interesting, illuminating, or inspiring. For episode show notes, links, and further information on our guests, please visit christianyordanov.com. If you found this episode valuable, please share it with someone who might also enjoy it. Thank you for being here.